Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our West Conway campus. Thanks for listening. Over this last break or so, a couple weeks ago, the boys were out front playing football, throwing the ball around, kicking the ball, that sort of thing. And uh, one of them kicked the football up onto the roof. Now there's debate on whose fault this is, but it doesn't matter. There's a football on the roof. And uh, so there was some conversation about dad can get it down because, you know, dad can do anything. And I went out there to the front yard. I was looking up at the roof and uh, you know, I'm afraid of heights, right? Y'all know that. And I was looking at this roof and things and, you know, you just got to do what you got to do. And I formulated a little plan. If I were to get my ladder fully extended out, lean it there against the front of the house, I could get up there as high as I could. And from that position, I needed to then uh, get on this pitch that's going this way. All right. Brick wall here, pitch going this way. If I could get on that, the pitch is too strong for me to stand. So I would have to sit on it and then like shimmy up it, all right? Get all the way to the top of that. And once I got to the top of that position, I should be able to reach over, because you can't see it and I can't stand up. I would have to reach over and get the football and then shimmy down and get there. That was the plan. That's what I decided to do. So I, I got my ladder out, I put it up there. I went up the top of the ladder, no problems. That's pretty easy. I got up there and I decided, nope. This football is just going to stay at this house. If, she, if we should ever sell this house, that football is going with it. The, it wasn't so much the pitch, it was the heights, as much as I don't like heights. It was the dismount and the mounts of the trying to go from the ladder here to the roof here just settled it for me. I'm not doing this, all right? That football, just go get another, another football. Things happen that way in life. From the ground, it looked like I could do it. From a distance, I could lay it all out. From where I was standing, I could articulate that this is what needed to happen. It's just when I took a step closer or the 20 steps up the ladder that I decided from this perspective, I don't think that I can do this. And the person or knowing the person of God can be like that. From a distance, we can sort of look at him and think that we've got it all figured out particularly from a very far distance, it seems the further people are from God, the better they understand him, that they can fully articulate the way that he is. But it's when we get closer that it becomes harder to wrap our minds around this. And to be honest with you, some of that's good. That's actually the way that it should be. The Bible says that God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are, are, are higher than our thoughts. There's a level to which we will never, never fully understand God, and that's the way that it should be. And listen, I'm not talking about what we call theology proper. If you go to seminary, you'll take theology one, theology two, theology three. You'll take them um, sometimes in that order. You don't have to, but you, you can take them in that order. In the first one, it begins with what's called theology proper, okay? Theology means theos, God, ology, study of. So you begin those courses with looking at the actual study, the idea of God, and that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about a systematic approach to his attributes and to what we know about him. I'm talking about actually knowing the person. Knowing the person of God as we get closer to him becomes more of an enigma, 
more of something that we can't fully understand. And listen, we do that to people too. We have the same uh, sort of interaction with humans as well. You'll see somebody on a television screen or on a stage. Maybe it's an actor or an athlete, a teacher or a preacher. And we will assume that we know that person, that we can articulate their desires and their passions, their aspirations and, and their objectives, but we can't. From a distance, we view God in this way that's like, um, I don't know, we'll, we'll think of him as like a spirit in the sky or like a, a loving grandfather or maybe some sort of version of a grandfather. Maybe, maybe it's like Poseidon in uh, the Little Mermaid movie. We, we just kind of picture God in that way. But it's when we step closer that it's harder, but actually good, right? It's a good thing to do. Knowing God or stepping into knowing God is a better way to move. And to make matters not more complicated or just something to add to the, the matter, God wants to be known. Micah 6, 8 is probably the most famous of all of the verses in Micah. And we didn't even look at it, all right, in our study of Micah. Kind of skipped over it. But here's what it says. Mankind, he, God, has told each of you what is good and what it is that the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfulness and to walk humbly with your God. This verse would communicate a couple of things. First of all, it does communicate the idea that God is concerned about justice. That's very true. That is the way that God is. He's very concerned about justice. In fact, he requires that you are equally involved in justice. It also communicates the idea that God wants to be known. Look, it says to walk humbly with your God, to walk with your God. How can two people walk together unless they are in agreement, unless they know each other, right? That's what the Bible teaches us. This is what God expects, that you would walk with him throughout the rest of your days, throughout the rest of your life. And if that's the case, then you're going to need to know him. So I view this text, I view this idea at the end of Micah as taking a step closer to God, getting a fuller picture of who he is so that we can walk more closely and more intimately with him. Micah finishes this prophetic book out with a a close-up, a zoom in on who God is. And my hope today is that as we read this, we would get a better picture of who God is, and then we ourselves would be changed by that picture. We'd see him more clearly the way that he is. Let's pray together, and then we'll uh, take a look at these three verses. God, thank you so much for for what you gifted us in your word. God, I pray that we are challenged by it and encouraged by it. We all walk in here with these, with these views of who you are. We have assumptions about you and, and about what makes you tick about your, uh, your motivations. God, I pray that all of those would be checked at the door and that we would leave here with a picture painted by you, that we would allow you to say who it is that you are, that we would at least give you that. God, I pray that we are changed and challenged, motivated and inspired to be different, to be more like you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray together. Amen. Micah chapter 7, verse 18 through 20, this is what it says. Who is a God like you, forgiving iniquity and passing over rebellion for the remnant of his inheritance? That's his people, all right? He does not hold on to his anger forever because he delights in faithful love. He will again have compassion on us. He will vanquish our iniquities. Look at what the next verse is. It says you. He's been talking about God 
And then here it switches to talking to God. Listen, that's not always the way it goes, but that's the way it should go. The more we know about God ought to drive us into a deeper relationship with God and not like an arrogant knowledge of different details about him, right? So he says, you will cast all our sins into the depths, the depths of the sea, and you will show loyalty to Jacob and faithful love to Abraham as you swore to our ancestors from days long ago. Check it out again. This is the way it starts. Who is a God like you? It's a rhetorical question. I think that's the way that you use this, right? Rhetorical question means that the answer is expected. You know what the answer is? Am I using that right? There's a lot of you that don't know either. All right. So we're going to just call it a rhetorical question. All right. So it is a rhetorical question. You're, the answer is expected there. And in this case, the answer is negative. Like who is a God like you? And the answer would come back, no one, right? That's just the obvious answer. That's what he is obviously saying here. Here's the, it's not ironic, but it's uh, interesting. Micah's name means who is like God, all right? That's what Micah means. And so Micah finishes his book with a, a, a little Easter egg in there, right? So it's almost like a signature. He says, this is my book and I am the one that's writing this. It's about God. But you know, who is really like God? The Faith Life Study Bible says that the two main themes of Micah are God's judgment against idolatry and injustice and, so it's judgment against idolatry and the, the hope that God's people will return to him and be restored. Two objectives there. What Micah sets out to do is to say, God is not pleased with idolatry and you ought to come back to God. That's what he sets out to do. And so he finishes trying to accomplish that objective by asking the question, who is like God? And then painting a picture of God, showing us a clearer idea of who God is. And that's really effective, I think. Idolatry, this idea of building up uh, some sort of thing that we would center our lives around, that we would, that we would orient our plans and our, and our emotions towards always comes from a perceived shortcoming that we see in God, right? God can't protect us, so I'm gonna need to, uh, I'm gonna need to network. I'm gonna need to establish myself. God can't provide for me, so I'm gonna need to get all I can and, and can it and then sit on the can, right? I need to provide for myself. I need to protect myself. I look for protection and provisions and popularity. I need all of these sort of things. God doesn't give me the love that I want. Therefore, I'm gonna seek it in the approval of other people. These idols that we make, right? all come when we don't have a clear picture of who God is. When we see God for who he is, then all those things fade away and we realize, oh man, he, he can provide for me. He can protect me. He's in charge. He's got this. He loves me. He knows me best and loves me still, right? So it's really effective to get this clear picture of who God is so that we would throw away our idols and that we would return to him. Also notice this, that this is the same sort of problem that we have and Micah's not telling them to look deep within themselves, right? This is so different than the life coaching and the Instagram reels that you see. You know, the people that uh, like uh, record themselves mouthing the words of somebody else who actually came up with the idea. That it's different than this. It's different than that robbery of ideas that we see on Instagram. It's different. It's not look within yourself or, or really discover yourself in order to come to the solution to the problem. The solution to the problem is not a better vision of who you are. 
It's a better vision of who God is and what he expects. Now, listen to me. There is fruit in, uh, in things like therapy and opening up and find, this is the way that I'm wired and this is the way that I act, that sort of stuff. There's fruit in that. It's just that that idea of who you are needs to be subject to the standards that God has set. It's not, it's not good to just say, oh, this is the way that I'm broken, you know, and so I'm telling you so that you will work around it, right? This is the way that I'm broken and I'm putting that under God's expectations and the standards for my life. When we think about this question, who is like our God? It drives us down two paths. The first one is the person of God, right? That he is completely unique. That God himself has abilities that no one else has. That he himself is different than every other person or interaction that you've ever had. And that's, listen, that is so important that we realize that. We're, our view of God is often framed by or colored in by our view of other authorities within our lives. But we need to start by saying he is so very different, so very unique in his personhood, but also unique in his actions. So God communicates. That's amazing. There's no other God that communicates the way that he communicates. That is also amazing. God creates other gods have tried to create other gods or myths have stepped into the idea, but God creates by speaking it. No other God creates that way. No other God is compassionate that way. No other God acts on the whole like the real God. God is completely and totally unique, completely and totally other. So it's important at this juncture for us to remind one another that the idea of knowing God is difficult but good. You hear what I'm saying? Like, he is so completely other that we will never understand him, but trying to understand him is a worthy pursuit. Knowing God better is the best path, even though we will never know God fully. He's completely unique. Let me give you an example of that. English, all right? I know English. I can say English words. I can even write some English words. I use English all the time to communicate, to uh, build up others, to edify other people in the scriptures, to make much of Jesus. I use English to do that and to provide for my family. I use English all the time. But any time that I am forced to use English academically, I realize I don't know English. I don't know any of this, right? Have you ever tried to write a paper or you ever taken another language? And you decide, I don't even know what any of this means, right? But it is still good to try to pursue it, to know it better, to know it deeper, to use it the best that we can for the good of others and the glory of God. And so therefore, we will learn more about God. Who is like our God? He gives us a couple of characteristics. The first one is found right there. Who is a God like you? Forgiving iniquities and passing over rebellion for the remnant of his people. He does not hold on to his anger forever because he delights in faithful love. Who is like our God? He is forgiving. So the first brushstroke is that God is forgiving. That is such a great place to start because so much of our relationship with God is contingent upon his ability to forgive us. That we have wronged him and that he has let it loose. 
There's at least three words in the three verses for what it is that God has forgiven us. Iniquities, um, rebellion, and sin. Iniquities, rebellion, and sin is down in the next verse. These three words describe and have different nuances for the same thing. But pretty much what it means is that we have wronged God. That we have gone against his standard and we have wronged him. He was in the right and we were in the wrong. And these are real transgressions, all right? They are lines in the sand that we have crossed. He said, don't do it, we did it. He said, do this and we didn't, all right? Real, actual sins. It's not the sort of things that we make up about one another just to be irritated with each other, you know? God is never gonna come to you and say, well, I just feel like, and then spill out some sort of emotional garbage about how you didn't meet some standard that he created. That's not the way that God operates. There's actual standards that we have crossed. He says, do not have other idols. And we create other idols all the time, right? He says, love your enemies. He said that. And we would rather bomb them than love them. He said, be generous. I'm generous to you. You be generous to other people and we won't even share, let alone be generous or sacrificial in the way that we act. All of these things God has told us to do and we do not do, these are actual transgressions. And the Bible says that he is forgiving. Who is like this God that forgives in this way? Actual wrongs. My favorite translation or uh, definition of forgiveness is to let loose, just let it loose on a number of ways. And isn't that exactly what it says that he does? He does not hold on to his anger forever. It doesn't say that he's not justified in being angry. He's completely justified in being angry. We did wrong to him, right? It also doesn't say that he doesn't have the ability. He doesn't hold on to his anger forever because it got too heavy, because it was too strong, because it was too big. That's not what it says. He is justified in his anger and he has the ability to hold on to whatever it is that he wants to hold on to. It's just that he doesn't, that he forgives. Then he lets it loose. How petty, tiny are the little things that we hold on to against one another. Little small things that somebody said or you think they said or you assumed what they meant when they didn't say what you thought that they were saying. We'll hold on to that. And how long, how long do we hold on to such a petty little thing? It could be years It could be a long, long time that we're holding on to something so very small. God doesn't do that. It says he actually delights in letting it loose. He loves to forgive, to let it loose. Two things he lets loose. He lets loose of the weight of of the guilt that, you know, we would dump on one another. We would pile on. We love to meet with people and just let them low. The big old laundry list of all the things that they've done to us. He doesn't do that. We let loose of the weight and he lets loose of the right. He's justified in being angry, but he lets loose of it. This is the way that God acts. Now, like if you were to sit here, don't be dramatic about it, but wherever your hands are, they're on your lap or whatever, you might go across, clench them up like a fist. Everybody do that. You got your fist all clenched up. This is the way that we act. And this is a fighting position, all right? This is ready to, ready to you know, throw hands, slap, we're gonna, we're gonna tangle. 
This is a fighting position. This is the way that we do. We hold on to tiny little things for as long as we possibly can, constantly dumping on the pain and the guilt on somebody else, working to undermine them, doing whatever it is as we are fighting and we are combating against that person. But what God does is, and this is what you do as well, just let it loose. Let your hand loose. This is not a fighting position. This is a a blessing position. It's a receiving position. This is a loving position. Just let it loose. That's what God does. What kind of forgiveness is this? If you think about it for just a second, what kind of forgiveness is like this? No one has ever forgiven you the way that God forgives you because no one has ever been wronged the way that God was wronged. Do you ever think about that? You know the phrase, it takes two to tango? The idea that there's guilt on both sides? That's true probably in nearly every situation. Sometimes it's not, but most times it is. But not with God. He didn't do anything. He didn't do anything to wrong you in any way. All the guilt is on your side and yet all the forgiveness is on his side and he delights in it to just let it loose. That's what God does. God is forgiving and God is fatherly. Now, I've got three words that all begin with F and that's why I chose fatherly. So you'll have to forgive me for that. I, you know, I just wanted all of them to have Fs. And so we have forgiving. Now we have fatherly. He will again have compassion on us. He will vanquish our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. A reminder here that compassion is an action. It is a choice that we make. We make that choice when we don't feel like doing it, all right? So if you've ever had a relationship with another human, okay, uh, which is probably all of you, okay, and you can be a parent, and be a love, uh, like, a, like, a, like a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a husband, a wife, something like that. It can be a child. You generally have warm like butterfly feelings towards them, right? Like most of the time, most of the time you feel that way towards your children, okay? But there are times, and you know this, don't act like you're a better parent than me. You know that there are times where you have to willfully choose to love them, right? Because as much as you have the emotions and there are times where they do something or don't do something in which you have to say, I choose uh, to sacrifice for your good. And that's what God does. Listen, it's not only, this is the amazing thing about who he is as a human, or not a human, he's not a human, as a person. God's not human. Jesus is fully human, but it's a different theology. (laughs) The thing about him as a person is that he not only is so delighted to let us loose, but then he also, after that, acts in our best interest. He's in the right. He let it loose and then he acted in the best interest of the other. That's what God does. That's the way that God acts. And look at how violent this verse is. It says that he will vanquish our iniquities and then he cast all our sins into the depths. The word vanquish there, uh, like lift up your hand just real small like this. If your translation says tread upon. Anybody? Okay, just a couple all around. Vanquish is what the the Christian standards say. Tread upon is another one. The Hebrew idea has to do with, um, I've seen animals do this. I've never seen a human do this. Maybe you've seen a human do this because you have different friends than me. But the idea is that you would attack an enemy. You would overpower them with your strength. 
throw them to the ground, and then step on their neck, all right, or on their throat, all right? You got any friends that do that kind of behavior? All right, and so that's what God does. That's what this word here, the tread upon idea that he will overpower the enemy, throw them to the ground and step on their neck. And then he will cast it. such a violent, such a violent fatherly, that protecting sort of dad move that he steps into the situation and he rectifies the situation that he will cast the, the, uh, the problems into the sea. Fawcett wrote, when God takes away the guilt of sin that it may not condemn us, he takes away the power of sin that it may not rule over us. In the history of the children of Israel, there was this story, there's this moment, probably the biggest story in the history of Israel, in which the children of Israel are freed from Egypt. Moses, you remember that? Let my people go, and then they, they all go, that kind of stuff, and Miriam sings a song. And they're going, and they get to the sea, and the sea stops them, right? The water stops them, but God parts the sea, and he makes the water stand up on two sides. And then the children of Israel, the people, the Israelis, they walk across on dry ground. At that moment, though, Pharaoh and the horses, the chariots, and the soldiers all um, pursue after the Israelis, chase after them, presumably to kill them. But then God, once the Jews are safely on one side of the shore and Pharaoh and his army are in the middle of the sea, God lets the water fall, right? And Exodus chapter 15 says it this way, he, God, threw Pharaoh's chariots and his army into the sea. The elite of his officers were drowned in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Lord, your right hand is glorious in power. Lord, your right hand shattered our enemies. You overthrew your adversaries by your great majesty. You unleashed your burning wrath. It consumed them like stubble. God is a violently protective father. That's the way that he is. He's quick, delights to let loose, and then he acts on the good of other people. Every year at the Jewish New Year, Jews will quote these three verses from memory. But when they do, they go to a river or a stream or a creek and they empty out their pockets as they're quoting these three verses. Now there's nothing in their pockets. It's just a, I almost thought like, I don't have one right here, but you know, they'll just reach in there and they'll grab imaginary stuff or lint or crumbs or whatever they've been carrying around. I always laugh when people say they've got crumbs in their pockets, like you've been carrying like a cookie in there or something, but they just will do this sort of thing. And what are they doing? They are symbolizing that God will, like the water, take away their sins. Whatever they brought into the relationship will take away their sins and carry them downstream forever, never to come back. Like the fishing rods that the Cadron Creek has taken from me, they will never return. They are gone. That's the imagery that is cast into the sea. God is a violently protective father and he takes away those things and takes them far away, never to return. Have y'all heard the story about Cody Hooks? Cody Hooks was an 18-year-old bull rider. And uh, he was riding a bull once down in Texas. And as soon as he came out of the chute, out of the gate, the bull uh, bucked back, hit him, and he, and he passed out. He flew off of, the, off of the animal, landed on the ground. And uh, in the videos, you could see him, he's laying on his back and his arms are moving like this, right? He is, he is out cold, right? No way to protect himself. No way to know what is going on the rodeo clowns are trying to distract the bull. That's their job, right? They're trying to distract the bull to protect the rider, but the rider's unconscious on the ground. It's at that moment that his dad 
jumps over the side of the gate and lays on top of Cody and protects him from the bull's horns. I think the dad uh, actually broke a couple of his ribs because this bull does um, hit both of them. That's the imagery of the way that God is. To the ones who wronged him, he jumps over the gate and takes the blow himself. He protects his children. So he's happy to let us loose. He's quick to protect us. And then he is faithful. You will show loyalty to Jacob and faithful love to Abraham. That loyalty to Jacob is really the the key part there. No one is perfect. And even after you become a child of God, you won't be perfect. So it is good that God is faithful. The relationship between God and his children is entirely secured by God's faithfulness. And it couldn't happen any other way. If our relationship with God was contingent upon our faithfulness, how long would that last for you? It would not last very long for any of us. It's all contingent upon his loyalty. We talked about Micah's name being who is like God. Well, Jacob's name means deceiver. That's what Jacob, so God is loyal to the deceiver. It's one thing to have a belief that is wrong, to walk around with beliefs that are wrong. Everybody does that. You have beliefs in your mind that are wrong. We all do that. I know you don't like me telling you that, um, but that's reality. We all do that. I can prove it. You ever like, you've, you've been singing a song off the radio forever and then years later you find out the actual words. You've been singing them wrong. You thought it was like, hold me closer, Tony Danza. And the whole time it was Tiny Dancer, all right? It's just something that you held. You just didn't know, right? And we do that. We do that all the time. We have these views. It's one thing to just have a view that is wrong. People do that. We're human. It's an entirely different thing to cook up a falsehood about somebody and then go and share it for the purpose of tricking other people. That's an entirely different sort of evil. So based on your own assumptions or your own bias to cook up something, to just fabricate it and to speak it like it's true and to allow other people to believe that in such a way that it devastates stuff. That's what Jacob did. It doesn't say Jacob is a liar. Jacob is a deceiver. He created lies and he spoke those into the family to destroy the family. He ripped apart the family through his own self-centered, deceitful manner. He lied to his father, he lied to his brother, he ripped apart the family. It's just the kind of guy that he was. And how difficult it must be to know that someone else has caused you harm and then be faithful to them all the same. This is the opposite of the way that we behave. Opposite. God knows that we are dishonest and deceitful and loves us all the same, is loyal to us all the same. And yet what we will do is... is is nitpick tiny little things. And then we will try to justify our own evil actions by the perceived evil actions of others. So yeah, does that ever happen? You, like somebody will talk to you and say, hey, what happened here? And you go, oh yeah, but you, like I know what I did was wrong, but you did wrong too. So, you know, it's all justified. That's the way that it sort of works. And God doesn't do that. Knowing that Jacob had deceived him, he loved him, all the same. God responds to our unfaithfulness with loyalty. It is the only way 
that works, and he knows it. Jackie was talking to one of our second family members and, and uh, who's a pharmacist at St. Vincent. And I'm just gonna summarize this because I don't know all the right words or, or I just, I thought this was a cool concept. She was telling her about a system that they have in which they understand that pharmacists are humans and if they should mess up, that that has some consequences, right? So there's systems built in, computerized systems built in to protect them and us, right? So like if the pharmacist gives you too much of the wrong thing, that's a bad deal, all right? But there's systems built in that assume it. And so they assume that the pharmacist may make an error. And so that protects them, all right? I thought that was so amazing. I thought that it was amazing that that system, which is designed to protect others, actually assumes that the other person has some flaws, right? We don't act that way. We don't act that way in our organizations. We don't act that way in relationships. We walk around constantly acting like the other person better toe the line, better be perfect, better respond exactly to the standard and the expectation that I have created, or I'm dead, they're dead to me. They're gone. And I will hold on to that for all of eternity and keep piling on whatever perceived imperfection that they have until they drown and they break under that way. That's not the way that God acts. In this relationship, God understands that in the purpose of making you more and more Christ-like, you will fail. He has began an endeavor. He has began a relationship with you in which you are to be more like him, understanding that's gonna take a while. And so he offers faithfulness when we mess up. So how's that? Is that a better picture of who he is? Maybe that's what you thought, but I don't know that that's to the depths that I thought that he so delights. And even though he is the one that has been wronged and letting loose, and then after he has let loose, he will violently protect us, do whatever it takes to save us. And then when we fail, he will be faithful back to us, meeting our unfaithfulness with his loyalty. Look, like I said earlier, we grow up painting pictures of God with different pieces from here and there. We have this view of him based on our father or our pastors or, or some coach or some teacher or some police officer or some authority that we saw on television. We will build this image of who God is. And understandably, some of you with that created idea of God decide, I don't wanna follow him. I don't like the authoritarian that he is. I don't like the overbearing, I can never meet his standard that he enforces upon me. Understandably, the version of God that you have constructed is not fun to follow or maybe even worth following. I understand that. So my question then is this, what about this picture? What about that one? What about that God, that forgiving, fatherly, faithful friend who wants to walk with you for the rest of your life. Is that worth following? I would argue it is. I would argue that that's the one that we're talking about, not the one that we have created in our minds. If you want more information about talking, following God that way, I'd love to talk to you. There's many, many other people that would love to talk to you about following God in that way. So here's the application. The first one is just be comforted, be at ease, I don't know what you brought in here this morning, but be at ease. This is the way that God 
this is the way that God treats you. He's faithful. He's fatherly. He's forgiving. None of you are outside of that realm. This is the way that God treats us. But then be inspired to treat others the same way. First of all, forgive each other. Ephesians 4.32 says, and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Let them loose. Let them loose. It's not doing you any good. It's not doing them any good. Let them loose. The second thing is to defend each other. Sometimes I, I'm dismayed at the idea that Christian community is just the absence of harming one another. And that's, that's not the case. Like a Christian community isn't just getting a bunch of people in together and saying, don't, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all, right? That's, no, we're supposed to like actually speak love to each other. It's not just don't say mean, say love, right? It's not just don't harm, it's defend. Step in there. But we don't do that. People don't do that. Like you'll be standing somewhere and someone starts to attack a Christian brother or a Christian sister and you just silently listen. You just listen. You're like, I'm not getting involved. I don't know. Yeah, well. And what we end up doing is just fanning those flames, letting it burn. Look, when you go to Sam's Club, you can expect a bunch of people who won't attack you, but you don't expect them to defend you. When you come to a church or when you're involved in a church, you ought to expect people who would stand up and defend you. And so that assumption is wrong. Your perspective is misguided. Forgive each other, defend each other, and then stick with each other. Probably the hardest one for sure. Once they've harmed you, forgive them, defend them, and then stick with them. Do y'all know what anamorphic art is? Anybody? Any art majors that know what that means? Anamorphic art, and maybe I'm saying the wrong thing, um, but it means, or it's one of my favorite forms of art. It's one of my favorite things that I like. It's, a, it's an installment. It's a big sort of thing. And at first, it just looks like a big pile of junk. It's all just standing there. And as you stand next to it, it just looks like a bunch of different things that are all compiled there. And like the, this picture is anamorphic art. And there's all sorts of things that you can see like this upside down wooden duck. You see that? See that right there? This up here looks like a tambourine to me. I really don't know what it is. It's got this white thing that comes next to it. There's a mask over here. It's like a wolf with little people underneath it. I don't know what that is. You know, there's a word over here, a little horse. It's anamorphic art. All right, it stands there, but it's not like, it's not like the kind of art where some of you are like, that, that's, that's horrible, all right? That looks like my garage, that's not art. That's not like that because what you're supposed to do is see all of these discombobulation, all this stuff, and you walk in front of it and you look through it with this little plate here. And this little plate I've outlined, the white lines is me drawing, it just stands there and you're supposed to get down, kind of look at all that junk through this perspective, aligned in this way. And when you do, that junk becomes a portrait. It's not junk. This is the upside down duck right here. Here's a little wolf with um, people in it. Here's the tambourine and the mask. That's what it becomes. And I feel like this text and the rest of scripture is that way. We walk in here with all of these pieces about who God is from experience and heartache and pain and joy and laughter. We bring all of that in here and it just 
doesn't, it looks like junk. But when we look through it the way that God has created us to look through it, when we see it the way that God has defined it, then it's a beautiful portrait of the way that he is. This art piece is by a guy named Bernard something. It's, it's French, and we already know that I don't know English. And the guy's name is Ferdinand something. I saw a picture of Ferdinand, and that's exactly what he looks like. It is. That's exactly what he looks like. My prayer this morning is that we would leave here with a better picture of who God is, and then we would just fall more in love with that person and walk with that person. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.